I'm Hemant Mehta, and I'm flying solo today. You're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Jocelyn Floyd is an attorney working with the Thomas More Society, a nonprofit group that usually defends religious liberty cases. As a frame of reference, they're usually on the other side of the Freedom From Religion Foundation on the issues. She also serves as a board member for the Northern Illinois chapter of the Christian Legal Society, and she also taught dance for several years and taught English in France for a year, which is really neat. So, Jocelyn, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let me start out right off the bat. It says, uh, I read in your bio on your website that you fell in love with the First Amendment during law school. And this is, I think, one of the big issues between a group like yours and, a, and the groups that I think a lot of my listeners probably support, which is that we all say we support the First Amendment, and yet we take very different sides on First Amendment cases. So what does the First Amendment mean to you? I guess what it means is that it, the way I see the First Amendment is that it protects everyone. One of the things that comes up in, in my discussions with work, because we do a lot of free speech work um, at the Thomas More Society, is that uh, the First Amendment, at least in the speech portion of it, is designed to protect offensive speech, because the speech that's not offensive doesn't need any protection because nobody's going to try and uh, censor something that doesn't bother them. But when there's situations with speech where people uh, try to censor, it's usually because they have some feeling of offense or they don't like that speech and they don't want to have to hear it. And the purpose of the First Amendment is to ensure that that speech is allowed to be heard as well, regardless of what the current majority opinion is on whatever the topic. And so we do see a lot of situations, especially in in my field with the religious speech and with the pro-life speech, where people want to censor it rather than engaging in the debate. And the First Amendment primarily, the, the understanding we have of it here is that the First Amendment is to protect this open marketplace of ideas so that debate is able to continue and flourish. And the hope of that is that just as in an economic market, when you have the competition and the debate happening, the best ideas are the ones that will rise to the top naturally. So I think I agree with you on everything you're saying there. One of the things that I've experienced just watching a lot of these cases is it seems like whenever the atheists are in this debate, they're always fighting for equal treatment. They they want exactly what you're saying because they're usually the unpopular opinion and they're fighting for the same treatment as every other group. When I see a lot of religious groups fighting this battle, I feel like they're asking for special treatment, not equal treatment. Am I wrong on that? Um, I don't know if it's a question of right or wrong or it's a question of experience. Um, I tend to feel like I have the opposite experience. Uh, I tend to, when I see these things, I see um, the atheists coming in where the speech is wholly legitimate and they don't want equal treatment. They just want to stop the speech. Now, there are cases 
to, to be honest and fair, <laughs> I do my best to acknowledge the cases, you know, that go against my position. There are cases where um, there is what's known as a public forum uh, in the, spe- the free speech doctrine, and religious speech is allowed in, and then some sort of atheist or minority religion uh, speech is excluded. And in those cases, uh, the people doing it are wrong. That that goes against the law, and I I absolutely agree that when you have a forum that's open to speech on an equal basis, you cannot discriminate on content or viewpoint. And so in those situations, um, and we have we have partnered with the ACLU on some situations like that. One of the things that we do at the Thomas More Society is that we have a campaign to get uh, nativity scenes up in every capital building across the country, um, because most of these Capitol buildings are have been opened as a public forum. And so when we did that in Springfield, uh, the ACLU joined us because they agreed with our opinion that this had been opened as a public forum, and having opened it to other speech, the Capitol could not exclude the religious speech as long as when they let the religious speech in, they also let the other speech in. So there is a nativity scene, there is a menorah, there's a Christmas tree, and there is a display by the Freedom from Religion Foundation. And all of those share space in the Capitol building because it's a public forum and they are all allowed equal access to it. So we're in agreement there. And and you're right. Anytime what tends to be happening, at least on my end, is when we see... And when I say we, I just mean atheists in general. When we see like a nativity scene in some public forum, yeah, there is this uh, argument that, okay, well, if they're going to allow it up there, uh, this is similar to what we saw in Oklahoma with like a Ten Commandments monument on the Capitol grounds that's saying, okay, well, let's have another religious monument, but maybe this time it's from the Satanic Temple or from a Hindu group. And so, yeah, I, I that makes sense that atheists want in. What about like, Uh, city council invocations, because this is where a lot of times I've seen a lot of atheist groups get excluded from the the idea, which is that, okay, we're going to we're a city council. We're going to have invocation prayers at the start of our meeting. And usually those are religious invocations and specifically they're Christian invocations. Um, And Mm -hmm. a lot of places when atheists have said, okay, we want to be on that uh, ever revolving roster of invocation speakers, they're left out in the cold. I have a practical question before I ask that. (laughs) What would an atheist want to say in an invocation? Usually when the atheists give invocations, what they're saying is we want what's best for the community. Uh, You know, we're not asking for any supernatural help because we elected all of you to this position because you got to do this yourself. So we wish you the best in your deliberation and your debate. It's, It's something along those lines. Okay. Um, They're not saying, you know, screw you, Christians, I hate religion, (laughs) if that's what you were getting at. No, I didn't expect, no, actually, it was that my understanding of invocation is that it is something inherently religious. It's, uh, you know, I I just Googled the definition, and at least one definition is the summoning of a deity or the supernatural. So that's why I was asked that, because there's a part of me that sees why would you want to join in that if it is something that is inherently religious. So then let me go back to the first thing you said. Uh, Sorry to cut you off. Let me go back to the first thing you said, which is if that's the case, let's suppose invocations are religious inherently. 
Is that an example of government saying, okay, religious speech is allowed, but no other kind of speech, like non-religious speech then is not allowed? Is that exclusionary? Um, all right, let me try and figure out the best way to articulate yeah. this. I'm going to go from a couple be, different directions. Sure, <laughs> so sure. This is and and be again, a little bit rambling. What I'm, what I'm getting uh, at is because in some cases that is what city council members have said, which is, well, what are you going to say? It's an invocation prayer. You're not praying, so we can say no to you. And the atheist argument has been, no, you can't. That's, that's stifling our free speech in this sort of public forum. Yeah, well, the definition for the for these types of speech, that may or may not be considered a public forum. I haven't looked into that. Uh-huh. I think in a lot of ways it's considered a separate thing um, from the traditional public forum doctrine. In the First Amendment, you have lots of doctrines that sort of overlap and sort of don't, and it gets very convoluted. So last year, the Supreme Court came out with a decision on a legislative prayer case, and that was the uh, town of Greece versus Galloway. And there, the um, so the there were a couple people in the town who said all of these prayers are Christian, and they shouldn't be allowed to be sectarian. They shouldn't be any one religion. All of the prayers have to be completely neutral, um, and so they don't show any alignment with any religion. And in my opinion, the Supreme Court rightly disagreed with that because every religion has some element that is in disagreement with some other religion. Um, You know, if you pray to God the Father versus Allah, there are people who say that's the same. There are people who say that's different. So by praying to God the Father, are you excluding the ones who believe God's name is Allah? Um, If you pray to, um, I don't know what else. Um, Sure, just any different religion. I'm with you there. Right. And so the court said that, you know, as long as it's not uh, proselytizing, so you can't get up there and you can't um, go off on a sermon and call it a prayer. Um, and that I agree with. Like, that's not the forum for you to be giving a sermon. It's you're, you're solemnizing and opening this government event um, and bringing a level of um, solemnization is the words that they use it to to really make it aware of everybody there that this is serious business and we're focusing on it because we're doing this for the good of the entire community. This isn't a personal thing. So what happened in town of Greece is that they had mostly Christian uh, invocations. They were almost all Christian for several years running. Yes. And part of that is just a natural consequence of the population that they had. They had mostly Christians interested. And when there was a challenge saying, you know, there's these other groups here who want to do it, they let other ones do it. They let a a Wiccan, they let a, um, I think they even let an atheist. I'm not certain on that fact there. I believe Um, they did, but only after a long drawn out fight. And it was kind of a, all right, fine, we'll let you, we'll let the tokens go ahead and say it. And then they went back to Christian prayers for a long time. Okay. I'm not familiar with all of the background leading That's up fine. to the case. But I, I'm not I holding you to that. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do know that the, the final decision by the Supreme Court said they're not required in the interest of maintaining complete religious neutrality to seek other religions outside their borders. And I think that's important, that if you have an area that's predominantly one faith, and then 
you end up having predominantly that faith show up in in the public in, in things like invocations, that's that's not a discrimination per se. That's just a natural consequence of the population you have. But I do agree with you that if there are people within the population that fit all of the other standards, you know, they're local and they ask, we want to do this, we want to be part of our community, they should be allowed. So in my opinion, they should allow the minority religions and they should allow the atheists as long as whatever standard they're using is an equal standard for all of them. So this is one of the points that I I really wanted to raise with you because I know the Thomas More Society is working on a case just like this. What if the standard that the government is holding is that, well, we'll allow anyone to speak, whether it's an invocation or to put up uh, something like a nativity scene in a public forum, which we'll get to, um, we'll allow anyone to do it as long as you have like an established uh, building in the community. Because when I hear that, it's like, okay, churches are welcome, but uh, hey, atheists who don't have enough money to own a building, you're out of luck. Like, isn't that kind of it's subtle discrimination without overtly saying that? Because only the majority groups can have those, uh, have the buildings, have the community presence. They're listed in the phone mm-hmm. book or whatever. You know, and I, I agree with you there, that, and that would be the same as saying only property owners can vote. Well, there's a lot of people who rent, and they rent for all sorts of reasons. They rent for financial reasons. They rent for, you know, the inability to uh, purchase. They rent because they have more of a mobile job at the time, and they can't put down the same roots of, you know, committing to this community forever. But they still have a right to vote as a member of that community while they're in the community. So I would say that if it were tied to property ownership, that would be, in my opinion, again, this is not something I have researched the law. I'm not familiar with the standards. Um, But in my opinion, the law should say that that kind of restriction, property ownership restriction, is unacceptable. Now, to contrast that, I think that reserving certain things to people who are residents of an area is legitimate. For example, libraries do this all the time. The library is a public resource. It is provided by the government for the benefit of its citizens, and it's paid for by tax dollars. So if you want a library card, you have to live within their borders, or you have to pay a fee, which (laughs) I've done in my life. (laughs) We Mm -hmm. lived in a small town with a crappy library, and (laughs) we, we drove two and a half hours once a month, every month when I was in junior high to go to the library um, and paid, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars a year for that privilege because it was important to my mom that we have those access to the books. But we did not go to this town two and a half hours away and say, we we deserve to use your library in this area that we do not pay any taxes and we are not part of the community. We had to pay for that privilege. So what about atheist groups uh, in the community who may... Uh, either rent a space or something. But, you know, a lot of atheist groups I know, they organize on places like Facebook or Meetup. Like, that is Mm -hmm. the way we organize. But, I mean, I guess I understand what you're saying about you have to live in the community. That that makes sense to me. But what if they're living in the community, but the way they organize atheists is on, like, a digital forum or something. They don't rent or lease space because, I mean, I know atheists are not exactly the people who gather once a week. So... This is where it gets, I guess, iffy for me, because I know in the you guys just had a case that involved a nativity scene outside of, I believe, a courthouse in Indiana, correct? Yes. 
Yeah, and that the the city council or whatever the local government in that area basically said you have to live in the area, and then I think they said the forum is open to you. And the atheists who were filing a lawsuit didn't really have anyone in the area who could do that. And that was kind of mm-hmm. what the argument was about. But if there's someone in that community who is an organizer, who is an atheist, um, is it okay for that person to go to that courthouse area and say, I want to put up this thing, I'm going to pay for it too? Is that okay then? Yeah. Now, to, to clarify a couple things on that one, Please. we had two separate cases actually, with that nativity scene. So the first case was filed trying to get the nativity scene removed, and the allegation was that the county itself sponsored the nativity scene and therefore was preferring one religion over another. Um, and, And if that allegation were true, it would have been a violation of the Establishment Clause, and it would have been an inappropriate action by the county. But it wasn't true. This this nativity scene is privately owned. It's privately sponsored. They go to the commissioners every year and get their uh, permit to have their display on the courthouse lawn, the same as other groups get their permits to do other displays. They have uh, a child abuse awareness uh, flag display. They have a garden event. They have various other things that happen on this courthouse lawn as well. So the problem was that they didn't have a written policy. They are a very, very small county. So they had a lot of informal policies, or I don't know how many others. This policy was informal. Everyone knew how it worked. Everyone knew you go to the commissioners, you ask, commissioners say yes, you get to do it. So it it wasn't clear to someone who was a complete outsider that this is a privately sponsored display. And so that's where the confusion came. So they then adopted a written ordinance, and this written ordinance came in to clarify completely, this is what the forum is, we are going to have these specific lots, here's a map, here's the permit uh, application process, decisions will be made without regard to content or um, viewpoint of the display, but we are going to put some limits on size for safety reasons, And you have to live in the community. Yeah, the uh, the original ordinance, uh, we are actually in the process that what uh, the original ordinance said that they opened up this law to citizens of Franklin County. Mm-hmm. And so we view that as like the library. If you want to use the community room in the library for your knitting club to meet, someone in your group has to be a card holder at this library. Mm-hmm. Someone in your group has to actually live here if you want to use this public resource that is um, supported by taxpaying funds by these local citizens. And so that was the original um, the original ordinance. And under that ordinance, the second application was from a local member of Freedom from Religious Fo- Foundation who wanted to put up a winter solstice display, and his application was granted. No problems at all. The problem came when we had outside groups. The Freedom From Religion Foundation as a group from Wisconsin came and put an application. The Satanic Temple as a group from Massachusetts came and put an application in. They aren't – their national group is not part of this community. And the purpose of opening this forum was – originally to be for members of this community to have a place to express themselves to the fellow members of this community. 
So, and then there's also safety concerns and, and organizational concerns. If someone flies in from several states over, puts a display up, and leaves, then if there's any trouble with that display over the course of the time it's up, and uh, these displays can be up for up to 45 days. So some of them are only up for a couple of days, some are up for a week or two, and some are up for a month and a half. If you have someone come in and put something up and then just leave town for that month and a half, you know, who's there to be responsible to maintain it, to, uh, you know, fix any problems, like if it falls over, if it breaks, if uh, it accidentally catches on fire because your electrical thing had a short, etc. So there are, there's practical concerns. So as well. long as there's someone in the community who can be there as, I guess, a rep of one of those outside groups, that could work? That, absolutely, under the original ordinance. Now, what happened is Freedom from Religion Foundation and the uh, Satanic Temple sued, saying that the entire ordinance is unconstitutional for having this limit in the first place. Uh, we we disagree with them. We think this is a legitimate uh, um, boundary to draw yeah. That within the ordinance. We think that this would be upheld by the law, but we are actually in the process of settling that lawsuit with them And I can't go into all of the details, but one of the things we did is expand the scope of their local representatives. So we are allowing the Satanic Temple and the Freedom from Religion Foundation, and we aren't requiring that local representative to be a member of that organization. They just have to find a local representative, whether it be a member who's willing to take responsibility or hire a handyman who says, all right, I'll be the one in charge of it and they can call me if there's problems. Got it. So that's the compromise we've reached in that situation. I do not think that compromise is required by law. I think it's a compromise that we have worked out with them in terms of uh, trying to settle this without the hassles of going through a gigantic lawsuit. So you're throwing um, you're throwing FFRF and the Satanic Temple a bone here saying, look, we'll do this for you, even though we don't need to in that in that way. Th- that's my opinion. OK, uh, there's there's varied opinions on how forum doctrine works and whether that's an acceptable boundary. There are some people who disagree with me. Uh, there's also a fair number of people who do agree with me. Sure. And in just in practicality, when you're opening up a, a public forum for a display, especially, you know, we're not saying that people outside the county can't come in and have a picnic on the lawn, you know, things that don't require that permit process. But if you're going to put up a freestanding display that's unattended, you're speaking to members of this community. And that's a privilege that members of this community get to do to speak to each other. And if you are outside the community and you want to come in and essentially proselytize to this community, but you don't have anyone in the community, there are other ways you can do that to gain a foothold in this community, to get a population in this community that then will have that privilege of having access to this uh, limited public forum. But if you have no one in this community, then you're not actually speaking on an equal basis. You're asking for special treatment. We as a national organization want to come in and talk to your community. Okay, rent a space, get a billboard, talk to the community. And if then you have people who say, oh, I like you. Uh, You make sense. I want to be part of your group. Boom. You've got local members who now have the ability to access the privilege of this limited public forum. One of the things I noted uh, noticed in your press release, uh, and I laughed a little bit, you guys, 
I, I think it was about this uh, Franklin County uh, courthouse thing. You guys said FFRF files, quote, nuisance lawsuits. And I was wondering, uh, like, what qualifies as a nuisance lawsuit? Where do you think uh, groups like FFRF cross the line? Um, well, in this case, I would say this one to some extent, the, the original one to some extent was a nuisance lawsuit. They didn't do their research. If they had done their research, they would have realized that this is a public forum and these are privately, it was a privately sponsored nativity. They sued saying the county puts this up and the county can't do that. And that that basic fact that their entire lawsuit rested on was not true. Do you and think... that's something... Go ahead. Well, that's something that all attorneys have an obligation when we are um, filing a suit. We have an obligation not just to take our client's word for it. We have an obligation to do a certain level of investigation, determine the accuracy of these allegations. Do you think any... Uh... Because you work in the same sort of religious freedom sphere, uh, you know the other types of lawsuits they file, whether it's, you know, dealing with school issues, um, uh, government issues, things like that. Are there any, like, genre of cases that those groups file that you think, why are they why are they doing this? Without even getting into any details, um, why would they be going after this particular issue? Do you ever wonder that about any type of case? I think it's less type of case and more um, people involved. A lot of times it seems like they're coming in from the outside and they try and recruit someone local to be the the face of their complaint. But, so they have a local representative to give them standing in the court. But they're, they're suing over something that um, no one in the community has an issue with it. Like... Even the people who who they they represent are usually anonymous, which means they don't really care that much. If they really cared that much, they would be willing to put their name on it. See, I disagree with you on that because I think in a lot of places, I mean, you you as an atheist, you can't be public because the backlash from Christians is going to be so fierce. So the FFRF knows who these people are, but they don't want to put their name on a lawsuit if they don't have to. And I think and I that's guess, a different again, concern. My experience is yeah. different. I mean, I've had, in my experience, you know, going to a liberal law school, and there's a large population of constitutional attorneys who are very liberal. Um, sometimes I'm scared to say I'm a Christian because of the backlash that comes from it. So I think I'm not we denying. all come from our own experience and see what that is, what that backlash is. And I guess I don't deny that you're in the. Yeah, go ahead. For me personally, I, if you care, I am, and again, I, I haven't spoken to these people. I haven't, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't know their personal experience, but um, if there's something I care that much about, I care enough about it to brave the backlash. Maybe that's my standard. Um, I, I feel that's so much easier said than done because I've heard from like atheists who's uh, who are, let's say, on a high school football team and their team prays, which is fine. But then the coaches are involved. Maybe the coaches are leading the prayer and the coaches are saying the prayer with the students. They know it's wrong. Those coaches shouldn't be proselytizing on the field. 
but they don't want to say anything because it's going to hurt their playing time. It's going to hurt their scholarship opportunities, their recommendations. And so they'll inform a group like the FFRF, but they'll say, please don't tell anyone I'm the one who who ratted you out, who ratted them out or anything, because I don't want to deal with the backlash from my teammates. But I know this is wrong. And And again, I'm not saying that you don't feel like you're in the minority when you're in a place like law school as a conservative or something. But I think that fear that atheists have, it's very real for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think another point of, uh, to get back to the question of what constitutes a nuisance lawsuit, because yeah. I, I agree with you, there, there, there is that, especially high schoolers. I mean, high school peer pressure, the, it's, it's hard to stand up for anything that you are not <laughs> backed up by multiple people. Um, But part of the reason we view a lot of the FFRF lawsuits as what we call nuisance lawsuits is that, and I did not write that part of the press release, by the way. (laughs) I don't know that I would have said that. (laughs) Um, FFRF has a completely different interpretation of the First Amendment than we do. They believe that the First Amendment gives them, and it's in their name, freedom, from religion. They do not believe that they should ever have to be exposed to religion in the public square. I don't think that's what they're saying. If you look at what (laughs) they say about specific things, basically they think your religion should be something you do at home. It's a private thing. It's a, you know, Sunday morning or Saturday at your church, you have a freedom to worship, but you don't have the freedom to bring that religion into the public square and and into public life. And I think the, the problem with that is that for so many religious people. Now, there are people who are nominally religious. They go to church on Sunday, and it doesn't really have any impact on the rest of their life. But for the people who actually are, you know, are fighting for the, the religious freedom rights, these are the ones who their religion shapes their entire worldview, and it, it affects every decision they make in every portion of their life because that's their basic worldview. And everybody has a worldview that shapes their decisions and how how they interpret things and what they think is important and why they focus on X issue over Y issue. And uh, there's a lot of things that there's – there's also a lot of things that some people say, this is religion in the public square and it's state endorsement, and it's like, really? There's a case that FFRS brought against a school in – I want to say New Jersey. It was somewhere in um, the East Coast area. And um, a teacher, a beloved teacher of the school, had died in a horrible car accident, I think it was. And so they put up a memorial bench in honor of this teacher. And it just, I don't remember the text exactly, but it had her name. And it was just saying, we remember, we love you. And it had angels on it. Mm-hmm. And it was something that the school, all the students liked. It was something that the family of this teacher that it was honoring liked. And it was something that was part of just honoring who this teacher was. And FFRF sued saying these angels violate the Establishment Clause. You are preferring a religion over another. Well, it's to honor a specific person, and that specific person was of that faith. And it was something chosen by people who knew her to reflect and honor 
her as a teacher, as a person, as what she had done to influence this school. And she had been a beloved teacher that influenced many, many students over the years she was there. And it was like, why... Why is that something that is so offensive? It, there, there's no prayer. There's no Bible verses. There's no mention of God. And, and frankly, the angels over you when you're dead goes against a lot of uh, Christian <laughs> actual teachings. <laughs> you so, know, the concept of a guardian angel, things like that. So even in this thing where people say this is too religious, a lot of the religious people are like, Actually, it does not reflect what our religion teaches. So it sounds like what you're saying is if the community has no problem with it, and it's not it's not proselytizing, it's not saying you have to agree with us here, what's the big deal? Yeah. So then, if we're talking about that, let's talk about gay marriage, because this is something I think, <laughs> I think this is something your group has been opposed to. And I have two questions on this. First of all, then, I, if that's the case, most people seem pretty supportive of gay marriage. It doesn't, no one's saying you have to go get gay married. So doesn't that contradict what you're saying earlier? Because if most people are okay with it, it doesn't, you know, hurt anybody else. Why fight against it? All right, I have two answers. Please. Um, and I'm going to go backwards. First, I'm going to talk about why we care now. Yeah. Um, after Obergefell. The threats to religious liberty are giant right now. We have been seeing them, and now that the Supreme Court has said that this is a constitutionally protected right, um, those threats are, are just multiplying. We have threats to Christian business owners who don't want to participate in gay marriage. And regardless of whether you agree, um, you general, agree with their statement of their faith, um, if, if a photographer does not want to use her expressive gifts to memorialize a gay wedding, that should be something she's allowed to refuse because they paint – they, I'm going in generality. Yeah, yeah. The opposition that we hear is this is discrimination against gay people on the basis of their sexual orientation. And yet in most of these cases – the people who are being sued for discrimination have actually served these clients before. They have no problem serving them as clients. These bakers are happy to make them birthday cakes, cookies, pastries, uh, do flower arrangements just because. But they don't want to do the ones that are for a ceremony, solemnizing something that goes against their religion because they feel that is participation. And that opinion has not gotten much respect in the courts or in the court of public appeal or uh, public opinion. opinion. And that I think is is a dangerous thing for the religious liberty because the the trend going is as soon as you enter a business for profit, your religion gets no no respect at all. You have to keep it separate. We're not giving you any quote unquote special treatment. And yet, what they're asking for is the same as you know. Um, other groups have the right to. We, there's a, an example where someone came into a uh, a pro-gay marriage uh, bakery and asked for a very specifically Christian case, cake, and was told no, and then sued, you know, kind of to show the contrast. That was the purpose of this, and got a complete opposite reaction from the court. And it said, no, they're allowed to pick and choose. And I thought the reason, I don't know the specifics on that one, but I thought one of those instances was someone wanted like hate speech or that's what it was classified under and that's why they said no to it um 
Yeah, but it, it shows you the um, the mentality of the court that they chose to interpret Bible verses as hate speech, um, and they did not choose to interpret a gay person coming into well, a Bible verses, <laughs> Bible verses that said gay people should be killed. <laughs> like as no, hate. no, absolutely <laughs> Was it not? not. They were not. But no. Okay. <laughs> it, it, they did not say that gay people should be killed, and there is. No self-respecting Christian I know that would say that. The people who say that are outliers. They are not reflecting the truth of the Bible. They are not reflecting the truth of God. The truth of God, this is, I'm going to preach. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I'm going to preach for a second. The truth of God is that we as human beings are all made in the image of God, and we are children of God, and we have an inherent dignity, each one individually, as an image bearer of God. And every single person I meet, I respect as a human being because I see them as an image bearer of God. And that's a big deal. I guess it's hard for me to understand. uh, And by the way, I I realize I'm already over time that I promised uh, you, but I do want to continue a little bit on this. I think what's hard for me and a lot of other people to understand is I don't disagree with you. I'm sure you do treat people with respect and and you you genuinely believe that. But when you say something like, you know, I'm a I'm a florist and I don't want to put flowers up at your wedding because it goes at your, you know, I don't believe in gay marriage or something. That to me like no one's asking you to stand up in the wedding or something. That's where it's like, well, now you you are disrespecting them. You are saying like your existence offends me or something. And I think that's where a lot of the the public opinion that's where you lose people yeah and i think that's something that public opinion and 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 media perception and and the telling of it is we disagree with that interpretation i don't Mm -hmm. agree that it's saying your uh, your existence offends me i don't even agree that you're saying your marriage offends me it's saying that i view this as a level of participation in something i can't participate in um, you know, there's a lot of Christians who have people in their lives who are family members or close friends who are gay and want to go get married, and they have a very hard decision. Do they attend the wedding ceremony? Because the attendees at a wedding ceremony are witnesses. There's a role that they play, even passive, you know, not necessarily the bridal party or the whatever, the the ones who sign the certificate as witnesses. Everyone there is a witness to this. And um, for a lot of Christians, even that passive sitting in the seat attending is a level of participation that they don't feel they can do. And we're simply asking for respect. And when I, I also like to do metaphors and, and pull this out of the religious context. So imagine a vegan bakery, mm-hmm. you know, gluten-free, vegan, whatever. There's a vegan bakery. My sister's allergic to milk and eggs. So when it comes to baked goods, she's effectively vegan. Now, this is where we get to the hypothetical. Hypothetically, my sister decides to go to school to learn how to be a butcher. She learns how to slaughter animals, cut them up, and sell the meat. She graduates from whatever this training is. We're having a party. We want to have a party for her, and we want to celebrate her newfound skills in killing animals. Oh, but she has dietary restrictions, so we're going to go to the vegan bakery because we know they can make food that's safe for her. So we go to the vegan bakery, and we say, hey, we want you to make a cake. And on this cake, we want to say, congratulations, butcher. (laughs) 
And the vegan baker, who is a vegan baker because she firmly believes that consuming animal products is wrong and it is for whatever moral reason she has drawn the line um, that, you know, even in the form of milk and eggs, she's not going to support anything that takes from the animal. Is she allowed to say, no, I do not want to participate in your party celebrating butchery? I have to think about that one. That's... I, I feel like that metaphor doesn't work, and I'm at a loss for why because I'm looking at several other things right now. But okay, <laughs> I, I hear I hear your point. I I just don't buy that. You know, even the even the vegan baker. I'm like, she's not she's not being asked to support butchery. <laughs> I don't know. That's the first but thought that I came to my mind. To help celebrate it. You know, I mean, they're vegetarians one... who work at Taco Bell too, but that's the yeah, job you signed but, up for. But again, each individual person draws the line at a separate place. Some people say, I'm fine working at Taco Bell. Some vegetarians say, I will never get a job at Taco Bell. So, but at some point, so, don't we, we have to draw that. a line? Because, like, if you're, what if it's racist? What if it's sexist or something? I'm not going to serve women. I'm not, I'm a, what is the metaphor you hear nowadays, which is uh, you're a Muslim person at the DMV and you don't want women, if you're like an extremist or something, you don't want women to get licenses to drive. We would all say, that's wrong. You can't do that. Um, actually, okay, let me. Again, I'm sorry. you're expanding yeah. the metaphor beyond the the individual business owner. Because now you're a government you're a Muslim, employee. Yeah, you're a government employee, and you are saying that you want to change the entire policy that goes against the entire okay. structure of our government. Let me let me ask you a few quick. Yeah. You're saying there's a difference between a government worker owner. and an individual business owner. Um, yes. I also say, yeah. I'm saying there's a difference between an individual or business owner who declines a specific case versus an individual business owner who declines to serve a group of people as a whole. And that's where we disagree. I do not believe that refusing to participate in the gay Marriage, whether that be as a photographer, a florist, a baker, um, renting your facility, I do not believe that that is refusing service to the person as a whole because of who they are. I believe that is refusing service for a specific event, and that's something that businesses do all the time for all sorts of reasons and is fully acceptable. I have two really quick follow-up questions then one is do you think then the the kim davis situation do you think that's different because she's a government worker uh where do you stand i guess on her issue that's not a quick answer yeah i I know it's not (laughs) i can take the time but um the the thing with kim davis is that there's a lot of back history there that has not really been made known in all of the stories So back in January, she anticipated the likelihood of the Obergefell decision coming down the way it would and was concerned because she is the clerk and she's the county clerk, so her name is on every single marriage certificate. And she was concerned because she did not feel comfortable with her name, not with the certificate being issued, but with her name being on these certificates. And she went to the legislature and said, hey, Can we do something about this? Can we figure out how to do this so that the law can be followed, so that everyone can have access without any problems, but I do not have to have my name on them? And they ignored her. And she reached out to the governor, and he ignored her. And then the decision came down. 
And she reached out to the governor, and they said, oh, legislator, legislature, the legislature is not in session. But the governor has the power to call a special session. Nope, he's not going to do it. So she tried every legitimate route to find some level of accommodation that would allow her to do this very small portion of her job in accord with what her conscience required. And nobody was willing to give her any type of uh, of accommodation. And there are other states that have. They've said if you are, um, you know, a clerk and you don't want to issue it, then you, they can you can send them to a different desk and and they can get it from a different person, and that's fine. The only reason the Kim Davis one became such a big deal is because she wasn't an individual clerk saying I don't want to issue that one when I'm manning the desk. She was saying all of them have my name on it, and I don't want my name on these. Um, again, we all disagree as to what constitutes participation, but for her, that's where the line was drawn. Um, and so her only way to get the attention of the legislature and the governor and get something fixed was to say, all right, we're not doing marriage certificates at all for anyone. And the way the law works in Kentucky, you can get it at any county, um, you do not have to get it at the county you're getting married in. So there are, I, I think it was seven uh, other counties within a 30-minute drive. Now, I know that adds an extra burden. Right. All the back and forth of how much burden is acceptable. Um it sounds so, to me like you're saying it's not like the gay people should have every right to get married now that it is legal. And you're saying Kim Davis has a right to do what she's doing. It's really up to the legislature to figure out how they want to sort this out. It sounds like you're putting the onus on the legislature to do something now. I'm putting, Yeah, the onus is on the legislature to ensure that there is uninterrupted access to these wedding licenses without violating the conscience of their employees. Okay. And... They have an employee who said, this violates my conscience. How do we work around that? And she has been ignored at every turn. And I don't think that's right. I don't think that that when you enter the government, you have to completely give up your religion. There are certain things that you might have to do that are distasteful to your conscience. But we have laws that protect your religious rights in the workplace, and those laws protect federal workers as well. And... She's asking for a reasonable accommodation. She's not asking for her entire county to never give out a gay uh, wedding license. She's asking for a reasonable accommodation that would be legitimate and acceptable for the legislature to do. And that reasonable accommodation should be granted. Okay. I I have one more question for you, and I don't want to open up, like you said, another Kim Davis can of worms here. Uh, Thomas More Society is a Catholic-affiliated group, correct? Officially, no. Oh, okay. We are organized as a 501c3 under um, educational and uh, service. I don't remember the exact title. We're not officially organized as a religious organization. Got it. Effectively, um, everyone in the firm but me is Catholic. Got it. Um, (laughs) What are you? Um, I'm a Protestant. Oh, so. okay. Um, yeah, here's my question uh, dealing with that anyway. Uh, this was a case, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, this was a couple of years ago. There was a case involving adoption where Catholic Charities, which was kind of doing a lot of adoptions in Illinois, uh, Illinois basically said to them, you're only getting state funding if you're not discriminating against gay couples who want to adopt. The Catholic Charities people said, we can't do that. It violates our faith. 
And ultimately, Illinois, the, the government said, fine, but then we can't give you money if you're going to say we don't give kids to, to gay couples. And effectively, Catholic charity said, well, if you're not going to give us the funding, we can't operate. So, you know, these kids had to be kind of shuttled into a different secular organization. Here's what I don't get. I'm going to bypass the legal issues here. What I don't understand is, you know, saying that putting these kids in the, the hands of a gay couple or something, to me, that's not saying you as a Catholic organization, the Catholic Charities, it's not saying they had to uh, sanctify those marriages or couples or even like them. What I don't get is they're basically saying, yeah, screw the kids. We'll give them to someone else, but we refuse to give them to a gay couple. I, I guess what I don't understand in, in a case like that is it seemed like the kids were not a priority for that Catholic group. They were more interested in this is our religious liberty, this is our stance, and the kids are just kind of a byproduct if they're not going to be helped here. I would think any organization like that would say we would love to have a child with a gay couple who is loving and passes all the tests and wants to adopt a child rather than not have them adopted at all. I, I know that's a huge issue altogether here, but am I wrong on like the, the facts here? Because what I don't understand is why they wouldn't be okay with just saying, look, we don't support gay marriage or, or homosexuality. However, we want what's best for these kids. And if these kids want to be adopted by any couple that passes the, the requirements, we should help facilitate that, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think one of the key statements you just made there is the difference of opinion on we want what is best for this kid, these kids. And so there's a uh, – the Catholic Church does have teachings on homosexuality, and they have teachings on the family as a whole. And um, some of these I – you know, my my Protestant church teaches the exact same way, and some of them are slightly different. So um, I'm not 100% sure on all of the nuances of the Catholic one. But I know that they do teach that the family structure should be a father and a mother who are committed to permanent, exclusive, monogamous relationship of marriage. Within and in the Catholic Church, it's within the sacrament of marriage. Mm -hmm. And so what they believe is that for what is best for a child is to be raised by a married mother and father. And so in, in their perspective, as a, as a religious organization, it would violate their duty to do what is best for the child to place the child in a situation that they do not think is the best for the child. Now, I know there's lots of disagreeing opinions on whether it is harmful, isn't harmful, you know, what the differences are, do the differences matter. But when we're talking about religious liberty, we're not talking about um, – necessarily 100% all of the science behind it. We're talking about their their religious conviction that what is most important for this child is to be placed in a home with a married mother and father. And one of the things is that they do work, or they did, they worked with children um, when there were times where the closest relative was uh, in a gay relationship they did work with those couples because they also believe it's important for people, for children to be raised by um, 
by close relatives where those options are available. So they did have certain exceptions where they would honor the, the, the biological connection, even where they didn't believe the um, home situation was the best of all situations, because again, at that point, there's other factors involved and, and you put them at risk of not getting adopted at all if you completely eliminate their family. So when you look at that, the, the strength of their religious conviction, you're saying that you interpret that as them caring more about um, their stance the, on something yeah. than, than the children. And I see it as them caring about their religion be, or caring about the children because of what their religion teaches of how to best care for these children. And in my opinion, it's the government there who said we are so hardcore on our stance that we don't care about the kids. We don't care that you service a ton of children and you provide an amazing service to our state that we as the state are incapable of doing on our own. Because that's true of many religious organizations. They fill a gap that the state government on its own can't do. And this is true of the Catholic Charities with Adoption. This is true of shelters. This is true of um, uh, all sorts of um, not-for-profit organizations that serve their communities. And one caveat to that that I've heard recently, and I'm not fully sure where I stand on it, is that there is a caution where the religious provider is the only provider, essentially has a monopoly. If the only adoption services in Illinois were through Catholic charities, it makes it, in my mind, a much harder case because then effectively the gay couples have no option. They can't adopt in Illinois. They have to go out of state or out of country. So you're saying if there is a secular option, gay couples can adopt. No one's saying they can't. They just got to go through another venue. Yeah, and and when you have religious, uh, religiously organized um, community service organizations, they are serving the community because that's what their religion directs. Their religion says do it. Their religion says you need to serve the community. They are obeying their religion in that. And to tell them, okay, we love that you're in the community, but check the religious part. That undermines their entire identity as a religious organization and their entire purpose of doing it. They are doing it through their religion. Now, there's also secular community organizations that religious people work with, and I have nothing against those. But the religious ones, I think the fact that they are motivated by their religion should be respected, and it should be respected for what benefits they do offer and um, and in this case, there were other organizations in Illinois, there were secular ones, and there were other religious ones that didn't draw the same line. And so there were options out there, and the state dug its heels in and removed one of the options, and so they're the ones who took away this option for um, adoptive families and for children in need of families. They took it away because they would not allow a religious organization to operate according to the teachings of its religion. Okay. I mean, again, I do disagree because I think when there's a discriminatory organization, I don't really care what the religion, what your reason is for being a discriminatory in some way. But uh, listen, I, I have to say it's not easy to, it's never uh, easy to talk to someone who's on the opposite side, but I appreciate your coming on here and and thanks for like not shouting. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks for not shouting back. <laughs> right on. Uh, so we will post a link to the Thomas More Society on the show notes. And thank you again, Jocelyn, for uh, joining us. And hopefully we can talk again soon and debate some of these issues some more, because I'm sure we can okay. talk about a lot of it for a long time. Probably. Thank you so thank much. You. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at patreon.com slash hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at friendlyatheistpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Hemant Mehta, and we hope you'll join us next time.